Hello, welcome to Europe now and welcome to Malta. We have brought you to the European Union's smallest member state by both size and population, home to around half a million people, a church for every day of the year and two official languages, English and Maltese. Well, those languages testament to Malta's history, strategically placed islands between Italy and North Africa, which have been visited and ruled by so many the Phoenicians, Romans, Arabs, Normans, even Napoleon Bonaparte for a couple of years, and the British rule from 1800 to 1964. Well, 10 years after the British left, Malta became a republic, and in 2004, it joined the European Union. Today, it is on the front line of irregular migration into the EU. And since January, the European Union's asylum agency has been based here. Malta also stands out for its civil liberties. It's known as a bit of a trailblazer on LGBT plus rights, and yet at the same time is the only EU state where abortion is completely illegal in all circumstances. Meanwhile, as climate change becomes increasingly impossible to ignore, Malta is facing warnings that it could lose parts of its islands to rising sea levels. First, though, we're in the capital, Valletta, next to this memorial, which stands in the memory of a woman who brought the world's attention to Malta for the most sombre of reasons. Daphne Garawana Galizia, a journalist who was murdered in October 2017. Luke Brown has been looking into how the shockwaves of her killing are still reverberating in this island nation more than four years on. A simple shrine in a field in Malta. The site of the car bomb that killed Daphne Caruana Galizia in October 2017. The assassination of an investigative journalist set off shockwaves on the island. Four and a half years on, some still keep the flame of her memory alive. Alessandra Di Crespo is part of a civil society NGO, Republica. We won't stop. Not until justice is served anyway, and justice is a long way off. We're nearing the fifth year now, and uh, we need to keep these scandals going, especially just opposite the law courts, you know? Those are the law courts, and that's where justice must be done. In 2020, Prime Minister Joseph Muscat resigned amid mass protests and allegations that his chief of staff was linked to the case. None of the alleged masterminds have yet faced trial. Last year, a landmark public inquiry ruled that the government did bear responsibility for the murder, blaming it for creating a climate of impunity. Its recommendations have yet to be implemented by the new government. Daphne's family continues to fight for justice and pursue her legacy. Malta has a chance to turn itself from a pariah, a negative example, into a positive example, show the way forward. The public inquiry was a huge achievement in itself. There's never been a public inquiry into a journalist's murder anywhere in the world. It's a world first. That's what Malta has to do. It's got to fix all the problems the inquiry documented. And all the people Daphne exposed have to be prosecuted and face justice themselves. The public inquiry's panel of judges called for freedom of the press to be enshrined in the Constitution. But for Herman Gresh, chief editor of Malta's biggest newspaper, the current government has yet to take any steps to respect independent media. We have a government which pretends that the media does not exist. We have asked the Prime Minister for a one-on-one -on -one interview. This is Malta's biggest news organisation and he has not accepted. Unfortunately, we have a government that does not acknowledge the press to be the so-called fourth pillar of democracy. France 24 contacted the Maltese government communications department for comment, but has received no response to date. 
Three weeks after Daphne's death, journalist Caroline Muscat set up The Shift, a news site with a simple mission. I very often get the same question. Are you a journalist or are you an activist? We don't have that option in this country because we can't do our work before we correct the context in which we work. We can't call ourselves independent journalists where to fill a newspaper every day we are completely reliant on, on government or political sources. That is why the shift is so different. Some lessons haven't been learned from Daphne's death. Just like Daphne, Manuel Deli is an anti-corruption blogger. And just like Daphne, he's been vilified by the government, his face plastered on political billboards. The real danger is not in history repeating itself to Daphne's end, but uh, the experience that she had in her life of being under constant assault by an alliance of political parties who want to discredit her and criminals who want to get away with their crime. And sometimes they're the same people. Yes, we still get that. We still have to push back on it. Despite its role in the Daphne case, the governing Labour Party of Robert Abela won a landslide in the March election, its third straight win. I am Alfred Sant, member of the European Parliament since 2014, in the interest of the Malta Labour Party, which has been in government in Malta since 2013. I'm also a member of the group of socialists and democrats in the European Parliament. Well, we are in Valletta, and this is the place where the Knights of St. John, which ruled Malta for about 100 years, had their big hospital. And it's been renovated in a way that it looks over on Grand Harbour, which is the main harbour in Malta. Let's bring things up to the present day. We just watched our report together about some of the aftermath of the murder of the journalist Daphne Caruana Galizia. One major finding of the independent inquiry that followed Daphne's murder was that the state should shoulder responsibility for the killing. However, Daphne's sister, many journalists say that the state's interactions with the media haven't actually improved. I think they're exaggerating, frankly. They could have been better, but there has been an improvement. And there's been a conscious effort by the administration of the new Prime Minister, Robert Abela, to really make things move in the direction. I think he succeeded. Not perhaps 100%, but let's say 85%. Would you say that there has been true accountability for all those who were involved in some way in either her killing or the circumstances that permitted it to happen? As far as I know, and I think I'm right, uh, quite all people who have been sort of fingered by the police have been brought to justice, yes. Another issue we're going to look at in our programme is the fact that abortion is totally illegal here in Malta, as you know. It is estimated around 300 to 400 Maltese women do still terminate pregnancies every year. It's the only EU state where abortion is totally illegal. Is Malta prepared to have a discussion about this? depends who Malta is in this context. There are some people who would like to have it, I agree with them. Others say it's not an issue. I think it is an issue. But then the previous government, the nationalist government, which negotiated Malta's accession to the EU, had a protocol in it in which it's explicitly stated that abortion is not going to be something that the EU is going to involve itself with in Malta. Mm. And the majority of people still stick to that position, I'm afraid. So if there is going to be any change, where is that going to come from? But things change a lot in social terms. Like about 12 years ago, there was no divorce in Malta. Right? So change will happen, I'm sure. 
but will have to come from, from down below rather from the top down. Let's speak about migration. As you know, Malta, one of the major arrival points into the European Union for undocumented migrants. There have been a lot of questions in recent times about the treatment of migrants once they're in Malta. Uh, the European Union's asylum support office, as was, had received reports of physical beatings, torture, denial of medical care, which the Home Affairs Ministry uh, simply denied. Given the seriousness of those claims and others, is this worth more investigation? Well, it always is worth more investigation when human rights abuses are being claimed. But frankly, people do exaggerate. I mean, this has never been put into context, for instance, that Malta has the highest concentration of asylum seekers, apart from Greece, within the EU on a proportionate basis. And that this, this has put a strain on quite a number of resources. So we have to look at it from all sides of the, of the picture, if you like. Is it all worth investigating to ascertain if there is exaggeration? I told you it's always, always worth investigating, but then when the results come one way, those who are against those results claim not to be satisfied and the other way around. A word about uh, climate change, a big issue here in Malta. There are warnings of desertification, sea level rises, submerging parts of the islands. And Malta is currently receiving uh, its share of the EU recovery funding, nearly 40% of that earmarked for climate policy. It will make a lot of difference for this reason, that up to now EU investment funds have mainly gone to infrastructure projects on roads, because that's the European dimension that they had to have. The criteria have changed. Those funds, yes, they will be used quite productively, and we need that, on green and digitalisation areas. Alfred Sant, thank you very much. You're welcome. Well, let's look a little deeper into those issues of climate change here in Malta and what difference EU recovery money could make. Our reporter, Luke Brown, has been investigating. For the past five years, in his spare time, Adrian Gatt has been on a mission to re-green Malta. Today, he and his team of volunteers are planting 100 trees in Valletta. Ideally, make the hole slightly deeper than the pot. All right. In all, he's planted 3,000 trees, all local species that can cope with the heat, slow down desertification and boost biodiversity. We're trying to do something to, to remove this idea of a barren wasteland into something greener. The idea of one person can get a group of people who probably never thought of doing something similar and get all these people in action. So I think... The miracles have started. Adrian is getting help from an EU-backed NGO, Life Terra. They're contributing a mobile phone app to geolocate the new trees, as well as innovative techniques to maximise the success rate. Watering is very carbon intensive, and so anything that we can do to help this tree get established without any additional help is a plus, but it helps as part of the portfolio of solutions against desertification, and uh, the results are really very good, up to 80-90% survival. Great. For Malta, the climate situation is undeniably urgent. Last summer saw three separate heat waves. Five of the past six years have had below average rainfall. For the past 30 years, Simone Borge has crisscrossed the planet as Malta's climate ambassador. She says the situation is critical for the island's future. We have a proverb which says, February fills all our wells. And in fact, it has been one of the driest Februarys ever. But so has last year's February and the one before. If climate continues to get warmer and hotter and drier and Malta becomes a desert, it will be a very different Malta, not what we have today. Climate change is at the forefront of the European Union's post-COVID recovery plan in Malta. In all, it's receiving over 300 million euros of grants, of which over half will be directed to climate objectives. 
They include 60 million euros for zero emission vehicles and 60 million euros to improve energy efficiency in buildings. But beyond reducing carbon emissions, Malta also has to confront the impact of climate change. In November, one third of a normal year's rain fell in just one month. To counteract flash flooding in densely urbanised areas, the EU has financed 85% of this 54 million euro tunnel network. With no natural lakes or rivers, freshwater itself is scarce. The Maltese use 10% less water than the EU average, 110 litres a day each. They hope to save another 8 litres with this EU-funded educational campaign. That's vital. 60% of drinking water comes from the desalination process, but it's a costly and energy-hungry solution. The impact of that pressure is felt underground. Overuse of Malta's groundwater resources risks making what water is there saltier. And this is also a good indicator of potential impacts which might result as a result of climate change. If we have a rise in sea level, uh, it will definitely impact the interface between freshwater and underground water. Caught between the blazing sun and the Mediterranean Sea, Malta is vulnerable to climate change. Rising sea levels threaten Malta's coasts and beaches. The EU is funding a 600,000 euro study to evaluate the threats before it's too late. Time now to hear from a member of Malta's main opposition. Peter Agius, a spokesperson for the Nationalist Party. This is the village of Marsashlok, the south of Malta. It's a fisherman's village, as you can see. Uh, on the other side, you will see the power station, which generates all the electricity that this island needs, apart from the renewables. As you said, we're standing here opposite Malta's one and only power station, which was, in fact, being investigated by Daphne Caruana Galizia at the time of her murder. Green uh, members of the European Parliament have been opposing more investment in this power station, saying it makes Malta too dependent on dirty energy. When it comes to the future, investing in a permanent gas pipeline, I see the point of several members of European Parliament expressing doubt on whether European funds should go to finance something which is involved in this kind of corruption. But the future of the Maltese people requires that we have stability and cleaner energy. There are renewables here on the islands. Is that not an option to have more energy for Malta from renewables? Of course we need to do more. We cannot expect things to change overnight. There is a lot of hope and expectation for Malta to go electric also with our cars. And I think we're moving forward on that, but we need to accelerate the pace. There are still those here in Malta who say that European accession wasn't the greatest idea. Your party campaigned for accession. There was a 54% majority, though. That's quite fine. Has European accession been as good for Malta as your party thought it would be? No, I think we made the European accession work, especially in the, in the first 10 years of accession. Now it's also a question of seeing how it affected sectorial interests. For instance, the fishermen around us, you know, they are subject to quite rigid rules. They have become accountants of the sea. We need to make sure that Europe delivers in the households in a more concrete way through more communication. Malta is the smallest EU member state. Uh, geographically, it's on the periphery. How big of an impact can Maltese voices have in Europe? You can't say that uh, the size of a country is a major handicap. It's not. The European Union model is very democratic 
And I've seen many cases where the voice of the smallest country, the voice of the smaller one around the room, is heard if it's well versed. Peter Agius, thank you for your time. Well, it is here in Marseschlok that we'll round off part one of our programme. This picturesque fishing port, uh, very much a tourist attraction today, but it has also over the years been the scene of several anguished arrivals of undocumented migrants here into Malta and into the EU, of course. That is one of the topics that we will be delving into more deeply in part two of the programme. That's coming up in just a couple of minutes' time. Hope to see you there.